Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Watari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who's very much a fan of white pants suits. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and uh, white pants suits are they're seasonally appropriate, all right? As long as it's between uh, Memorial Day and Labor Day, I can wear and a white you're, pants And you're suit. a Japanese cinematic gangster. Yes. As long as I've got the chipmunk cheeks. I can. Uh, well, to be fair, to be fair, he, Joe does not sport the white pants suit I know. in this film. Joe doesn't wear it. But anytime he is a Japanese gangster, he does. Uh, <laughs> because true. this is just a. I, I had not processed until we started watching Suzuki films how much of a Japanese, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, trope that is. Yeah. Until I started watching a lot of, like, Japanese gangster films for this podcast. And I was like, oh my God. That's really a thing. And they, if, if it is a gangster film made pre-1990, like a Japanese gangster film made pre-1990, the main bad guy will definitely be wearing a white pantsuit. Right. Because you know he's going to be wearing a white pantsuit because if he's not and he's wearing a regular suit, he is definitely one of the chumps that that white pantsuit guy is going to murder. We, I've learned a lot. And that holds true in this film as well. <laughs> However, indirectly, the white pantsuit guy does in fact murder the person not wearing a white pantsuit. It's true. It's true. Huh. So we've learned a lot. Um, I'd say we call it a podcast. <laughs> no, we've got more to do. I'm sorry. My fear of dealing with the next movie is bleeding over into talking about this movie, which is weird. Well, take a deep breath, because we've got more Suzuki to get through. I know you're trepidatious about moving forward into our next Suzuki film after this, next week's story I'm of a prostitute. I'm very scared. I, the so amount, I, to, I cannot describe to you the amount I do not want to deal with the comfort women issue. Yes, I yes. Do not and I understand to. that. So I want to remind you that once a month, we do take a step back to not deal with any of the problems that the Criterion Collection present us with good or bad because well, there are many good problems, problems with the problems made by general collection. hollywood made by general hollywood but self-inflicted uh, <laughs> over at <laughs> patreon.com slash lost in criterion every month we put out a bonus episode and for just one dollar a month you get access to that bonus episode and you get to vote to help us decide which movie we're going to watch every month i put together a little list you guys vote on it and we watch that movie and talk about it, just like any other episode, but only Patreon subscribers get access to it. In the past, we've done some really great films, like Dog Day Afternoon or The Americanization of Emily, things we've been put outside of uh, sort of our normal purview and gone and tried to run after it. Um, we watched one recently. We watched uh, The Best Years of Our Lives on the suggestion of one of our Patreon mm -hmm. supporters, Adam Speakerman, uh, which is really great as well. Um, we've also watched some kind of terrible movies. Uh, 
Some fun bad, like Critters 2. Uh, some just bad, like uh, Monster, Monster Squad. Squad. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I offend you fans of Monster Squad in that. Uh, well, to be fair, uh, you're wrong. <laughs> but you are wrong. Uh, we've also watched uh, Ernest Goes to Camp and Aliens. Uh, it's a big swath. Uh, it's real fun. But if you want to listen to those, listen to Pat and I and guests talk about non-criterion movies, head over to patreon.com slash lost in criterion. Like I said, just a dollar a month gets you access to that, gets you voting rights. For $5 a month, though, we promise to thank you on air. So thank you, Adam Spreakerman. As I already said his name, Jason Westhaver as well, and Kevin Little, our most recent supporter. Thank you for your support, for your continued support, and we greatly enjoy it. Thank you for the support of all our listeners, though. Whether you... Support us on Patreon or not, we're glad you are here. Also, at $10 a month, there's a little bonus thing. Uh, and Jason recently popped up to it, and we thank him for that. Pat draws a little postcard based on one of the films we've watched recently. And I write a thank you note and mail it off to you. So if you like physical mail, uh, $10 a month. If you uh, if you like physical mail and like us, I guess, are the two prerequisites for that. But if if you just like physical mail, feel free to <laughs> throw your hat into that one, too. Um, but, yeah. Thank you, Jason, for that extra little support. This week, we are talking about a film from one of our favorite directors who I don't think either of us had heard of before we started this. Nope. <laughs> this, uh, Not at all. Journey Through the Criterion Collection. Seijan Suzuki, uh, who makes ridiculous, uh, wonderful uh, gangster movies, by and large. Um, Suzuki was a genius masquerading as a B-movie director. Well, I think that's uh, a, that is his genius, right? Is the B-movie... His genius is the B-movie genre. Operating in that environment, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this week, we're talking about his 1964 film, Gate of Flesh, an adaptation of the Tahiro and Tajiro Tamura to... It's okay. You were pretty close. I went with an H sound, and then I went with a J sound, and neither of those are right. So it's going to be Taijiro Tamura. Taijiro Tamura. There we go. I can do that. Uh, based on the novel by Tamura of the same name that came out in 1947. This is one of four film adaptations of that uh, of that book. The first one came out in 1948 and was apparently very much a tamed down version of the story. Uh Suzuki's is the second. Uh, Shigeru Nishimura, uh, who, looking at his filmography, seems to have made a lot of, uh, I believe you called them pink films. Yep. Uh, uh, his version came out in 1977. Uh, and then Hideo Gosha, uh, who we will see some other films from in the Criterion Collection, made a version that came out in 1988 under the title Carmen 1945. Uh, I don't think his version uh, is in the Criterion Collection, but as Probably I said, not. we do get other films from him. Uh, this is the story of a group of women uh, forced into prostitution in post-war Japan. Um, this is this is very much an anti-American film. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I imagine that I, based on the situation, my guess would be that the original novel is also 
pretty anti-American. Oh, so I'm it, sure. It's, it, I'm it's sure. in line. And I think probably Suzuki, honestly, if we're going to be really digging into it, and we might as well, my guess would be that Suzuki probably is approaching that from a, from a different angle in that more or less trying to comment more on the current state. My guess would be that he's more or less trying to talk about the current state of Japanese-American relations in 1964 rather oh, yeah, than the ones yeah. at the time in 1947. I mean, bear in mind, he was definitely, Suzuki was alive and in that situation as well when that, yeah. contemporaneous to that as well, but my guess is... Yeah, Suzuki's Suzuki's a veteran. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so he and, and he may possess some of the feelings, but it's very clear to me that from what I've seen that, you know, Gate of Flesh, and then also followed, as a turns out, Story of a Prostitute is also... Uh, 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 based on a novel by the same guy. Uh, I okay. Think. Nope, nope, sorry, I'm wrong. No, I'm just getting very confused. Wait. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, director Senkichi Taniguchi adapted another novel by Tamura on this film, Escape at Dawn, in 1950, which was remade by Seijun Suzuki, A Story of a Prostitute in 1965. Um, okay. So, yes, no, that is... He, uh, Tamura also wrote the next one we're going to talk about as well. And so my guess is that, you know, Tamura had a very specific viewpoint born out of the fact that the war had literally just ended about three years before. And, oh, uh, certainly. And and probably a lot of resentment. But at the same time, it didn't take, you know, it. it I, that's why I really, really would actually like to read the source material very much. I would like to ne- see exactly what his approach to it was. Because, you know, you hear a lot of sort of in textbooks about this time period in Japan's history about the way Japanese people respond to it. But a contemporaneous novel makes a good is a good window into people's perspectives. You know what I mean? Their feelings rather than their actions. Um, And I'm I put money down that the sanitization of the first film version of this wasn't just the sexual ethics of it. I think it was probably also political. Right. And that, that, yeah, that's not, it's no surprise, but it's, it's interesting because we see a carryover where like the film version gets sanitized, but the, the, the written version doesn't. Right. Which is a fascinating thing about American politics and the way they get applied to Japanese politics and the way Japanese people view, uh, even even that quickly after the war, start to view the role of like literature and censorship, right? It's right. fascinating because like censorship is like written censorship in Japan is just a no go. It just will not. You can't. You can't do it. Basically, right? Uh, I I mean I don't know. It'd be interesting to see to almost try to do a study and see in which country it is more frowned upon. Uh, but I mean, one way or the other, the result is, is that uh, the uh, the book didn't get censored, but the the movie does, which is just interesting. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Suzuki himself ran into any censorship problems in making Gate of Flesh. No. Well, because uh, keep in mind, we're we're post. We're that's ninety six. We're already post occupation. Yeah. I mean that that. So. Yeah, well, post-ish occupation. I think there's there's plenty of Japanese people that would argue that the occupation continues as long well, as. Well, right, I know, but I mean, uh, I'm saying like post the the the. Uh, yeah. Yeah the the American authority in in Japan as a as a right. functional concept. Right. Uh, 
Anyway, um, this is a period piece, as you, as you've reminded us. This is made in 1964, but it is set uh, in in the time the novel is set is 1940. Uh, 45, yeah, I think because it, it describes in the book in the Wikipedia very briefly because there's not a lot of information in there that uh, that the um, book was the movie the first movie was made exact was made one year after the book was released which would probably put it in 1972 could be 19 or sorry 1947 could be 1946 but yeah um this is. This is made at Suzuki's normal Nikatsu uh, mandated pace. 10 days pre-production, 25 days shooting, 3 days for post-production. <laughs> the brilliance of Suzuki is what he does within those constraints, right? Because it'd be, it'd be very easy for him to make this just a pink film. It'd be very easy for him to right. make his gangster films just violent gangster movies but he does particularly in editing he does some really amazing things um this one here uh frequently we get sort of uh insert shots and uh almost theatrical staging of certain uh well, I mean, certain scenes with two different people doing. Well, yeah, I mean, he does. Audience. He does. He does actually. He does overlays, you know, very yeah, extensively here, and these. I mean, they work pretty well. And I can only imagine. I, you don't. We I've, we've never seen that from him before, and I don't. You don't see it a lot in film in general. So right. I'm wondering. It, it's it's fascinating to see him really like. Go at you know use that extensively in this we've certainly talked about this in the past but i really feel like a lot of suzuki's ideas are him bored with the job he's been given so yeah. he's just throwing whatever he he's like well i've never done this before let's try it no i definitely <laughs> get that impression and i think probably by 1964 he's so used to that as being his like his mo that yeah. like even in a film which i i assume something like gate of flesh was probably a little bit less of a throwaway for him than maybe some of the other ones. Uh, just because of it, you know, we see that that same source material is made into four different movies. You know what I mean? Like, they've already tried to make this movie once before. It, this seems like a relatively bigger project that they've given to him than normal, if that makes sense. I mean, right. I may be wrong. I don't, I, I don't know the book, so I don't know how popular it is. But the fact that they've tried to make it into a movie four separate times makes me think that this might have been a slightly bigger deal than some of the other sort of schlock that he is used to getting. If that makes sense. Yeah. But you know, by 1964, he may just be so used to just being like, "Well, this is what I do." I think there's also a chance, though, that Nikatsu looked at the source and thought, well, this will just be schlock. <laughs> well, that's, that's definitely possible. And, and the reality is, like, I don't know enough about that story. Like, yeah. You could definitely make this just purely pornographic. Absolutely. And I, I think that's what the 1977 version probably did. Yeah, so <laughs> given that, as a, and that, so that may, be, that may explain. And I may be, I might be end up being, like, 
highly disappointed by the source material if I were to get a hold of it. It may have nothing interesting to say at all. Yeah. And all the interesting <laughs> things to say might be purely from Suzuki. One thing that really got me about this film is we're coming to it from a Bresson film. And one of the Bresson, one of the things Bresson tried to do so much of was to eliminate the theatrical aspects of film. He <clears throat> wanted to strip film of anything that felt like stage, that felt like theater. Whereas Suzuki here is specifically using theatrical aspects right. to... We actually talk about this in one of my classes that I teach, but like, um, like he and Suzuki is very intense about it. But keep in mind that, like, if you look at the Japanese directors we we have seen, that is a hallmark of Japanese acting and directing. Oh yeah, is double downing, doubling down on the sort of artifice of cinema reaction and behavior and right. and and emotion. I I I make the argument in class that 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 that's born of a a very classical ja- style of Japanese acting in general, um, with a with, you know minimal props, maximal facial expressions, yeah. and things like that. Um, yeah. Well, I also think Bresson's Bresson is interesting in that he is slowly moving across this. I mean, uh, Al Hazar Balthazar came out two years after Gate of Flesh, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> and it's. It's black and white and and stripped of artifice, and that's the that's the way Bresson was moving, even as uh, people all around him, uh, Suzuki here, definitely on display, are running the other way. <laughs> right, right, right. And 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 in many ways, like you you get a very different uh, like I think mode of thinking, right? Like Suzuki is early version is is in many ways instead of being that is a early version of like going into the 60s psychedelic cinema type of stuff even right you know what i mean like he is not afraid of anything whereas bresson very much not a psychedelic no no just like totally different ends of the spectrum in every possible way i mean this one i mean he's playing with a lot of stuff this is in many ways gate of flesh is is toned down for suzuki um (laughs) i think that's fair uh, he is he is being pretty conservative for him in this film. Um, even and, and uh, I would say, I think I think that is true overall. But there are rather specific instances that are very much not. Um, like Joe Shishido has a nude scene where we see his butt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which um, which is pretty great. Uh, like, let's be clear here. But like, but also. That really like borderline pornographic butchering of the cow. Uh, well, okay, let's <laughs> let's be clear here. I meant I did say like conservative for Suzuki. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I actually really there are certain parts of it like Suzuki has a like again this a lot of this is probably coming from him and not from the source material has a right. lot is saying a lot of interesting things. In this film, in a very, it is fascinating that a person can be both subtle, and at the same time, in no way, even remotely subtle. <laughs> and what I what I mean by that is, Suzuki the, that that scene or the butchering of the cow contains a lot of information. It is it is first of all overtly gross and pornographic. Right, you are absolutely right. I would not say borderline. I would say it is absolutely. 
down to the fact that the, their reactions to it are pornographic as well. But at the same time, uh, Suzuki is dealing with a time period in Japan where everybody's starving all the time. Right. So, like, he's not making a statement. He's he's in many ways, in a way that is unusual for a film, telegraphing that to us. I mean, we pe- oh yeah. We, we also get the standard, the tropes, people stealing food, things like that. But we also have him telling us in a way that is not a trope that everybody's fucking starving. Everything about that scene shows the ecstasy and desperation of getting that getting that cow, right? Absolutely. Like yeah. and and it and it's fascinating because I I I want to I'm going to have to quit my job and become a full-time essayist on Suzuki because there's too much to dig into in exclusively our podcast, which only has one more Suzuki film, right? Um, which is the saddest thing I've ever, it, I can't even cope. We just need to start having Suzuki themed months on the, uh, we'll have to work through the, the rest of Suzuki on the, on, on the, the, on Patreon. the uh, Patreon because I can't handle it. Um, we, we, well, the rest of Suzuki is impossible. Let's be clear here. We have like 95 more films to go through. Um, but like him also like talking like in many ways is like I think partially in in his films trying to and not just this one demonstrate a, a total break from the sort of standardized viewpoints presented in the West, but also even internally in Japan of what Japanese people are. Yeah. Like, because cause within Japan and also from outside of Japan, this viewpoint of Japanese people as being kind of, and I understand that this is changing because of, of the uptake of things like people's obsession with, like, you know, cosplay and things like that, uh, otaku getting, becoming more and more of a cultural touchstone outside of Japan for Japan, for Japanese people. But even within Japan, Japanese people still regard themselves as being straight-laced and and people who follow the rules and 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 calm and like a classic example is uh after the 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 great uh western japan earthquake uh 2011 one of the greatest one of the things you would read about is how japanese people didn't riot or loot they just got in line and just okay we're just going to wait for the supplies that are inevitably going to come that's what we do uh, right, and there's nothing wrong with that viewpoint because it is also accurate in and of itself, right? I mean, that is absolutely what people did. That's what Japanese. That is their. Na- that was that groups of people's natural reaction to that situation was moving in this orderly way, right? And so there's nothing wrong with that viewpoint. But but Suzuki, I think, in many ways, in his in his whole body of work, is trying to demonstrate. A, 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 that there is another Japan. That the, the Japan is not just that viewpoint, and it's not. And and I'm sure if he were still alive, it, the the new viewpoint of Japan is just sort of this of that mixed with like just this obsession with otaku culture, which makes up you know a relatively low percentage of people, but has become the sort of the new Western obsession, right? In dealing right. with Japan, kind of the way like you know uh, the French sort of um, fetishized Japanese culture. Uh, at several different times in their history as well, right? America does that with Jap- with Japan as well. Just sometimes picks different stuff. Um, but 
Japan also has its own viewpoints of itself, and Suzuki's viewpoints also don't match that viewpoint either. And I think that's an important thing about him. And I think things like their reactions to the cow and stuff like that, that 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 really abundant emotion, but also emotion that is not standard for sort of Japanese cinema, is important. Right. Like, he he wants to say, I think, a lot of things about the way Japanese people see themselves versus the way, you know, they actually are in real life and the way they react to, okay, we're all starving. Did we keep, were we perfectly orderly kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, because the, the transition, the, I mean, that, that whole era is generally portrayed in Japanese film and Japanese history as being very orderly and calm. It just, I mean, it just yeah. is. And, and, and that's of course a relative num- uh, concept, right? I mean, like relative to other post-war transitions. Yeah. It probably still would be considered orderly and, and calm. Uh, but I mean, people were still starving to death. So. And people were still dealing with, the trauma of having lived through the war and Absolutely. lost loved ones in the war and and we 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 did a patreon on cinematic representations of PTSD and this film is absolutely one yeah i mean yeah. it's it's not directly engaging with that concept but there's nearly not there is essentially not a single person in this film who is not traumatized right Right. At least it's not a single Japanese actor who is not portraying somebody who's traumatized. And all their different varied reactions to that and the way that they choose to deal with that. We get a, a wide variety of them. Right. Um. <laughs> As actually, yeah. uh, I know I've seen Chico Laurent before, but I always forget he exists. And that's the guy who plays plays the priest. Right. Yeah. Um uh, Chico was a American born. Um mm-hmm. and he moved to well he, he moved around a lot, but he ended up in Japan and became an actor and he was uh he was in a lot of uh lot of action films uh through the sixties. Um According to his obituary, he was fluent in ten languages, which is wow. Jeez, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I also ran across a, a really great write-up on him in a 1963 copy of Ebony uh, that someone has scanned in. That, uh, but yeah, really, really fascinating guy. Um, but yeah, ten ten languages. Yeah. Now, mind you, mind you, it's his American obituary, like his 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 hometown. Uh, so maybe they're exaggerating a little bit, but right, still, but even still, even if they weren't, uh, or even if they were, uh, guy lived an amazing life. Uh, yeah, African American becoming an actor in Japan. Yeah, no, uh, I mean he was... he he was he was a cinema staple in terms of. You know, oh, absolutely! Yeah, it seems. Yeah. Seems that we, way. we talked about a guy. We we talked about another guy. Who was the other guy in the last Japanese film we watched? In um, in uh, 
the other one. Surely not the last Japanese film we watched because that was Crazed Fruit. Yeah, no, in Crazed Fruit there was a white guy who was like a go-to. Oh no, Japanese it was the uh, white guy actor. He was he was uh, Dutch and Japanese uh, by yeah. heritage, uh, but he plays the uh, he plays the guy who keeps getting mistaken for American. Yeah, who's, who's coded yeah. as the foreigner in Crazed Fruit. Yeah, no, Fruit. I I I, I take a I take I do have a I have a there that is a not a major passion of mine, but I am I am always interested in that like it still happens today in japan don't get me wrong but uh but that that like through the history of japanese cinema that like well here's our go-to foreign guy yeah <laughs> who's in every film we make <laughs> that needs a foreign guy i just i don't know i always find that just to be a really fascinating concept yeah um i find that the priest a very interesting character here um, in that there he the American GIs are their own sort of foreign outside uh, governing force on us religion is is another one here um, now we've we've talked previously about the history of Catholicism and Christianity within Japan, and I think it's mm-hmm. perhaps a little unfair to uh, to portray it as solely uh, a our priest is an arm of the army, right? He is an arm right. of the occupation, buying eh, force, and uh, and. Uh, the Catholic Church existed in Japan outside of for a very yes for a very long time yeah yeah, yeah. now mind you uh, directly post war Japan America had just killed like ninety percent of the Japanese Catholic population that is absolutely true by uh, bombing Nagasaki that is absolutely true by bombing Nagasaki uh, so so maybe there aren't a lot of them still right around. well it, it, that but. we're in a really weird position because we're, we're not we're not in Nagasaki first of all we're in Tokyo which is is right. Has a, has always had a significantly lower Catholic population than even other outskirt areas of Japan, but it, it we're in a weird position because um, he is he is I, I it is unfair but it is also kind I I'm not too bothered by it because he is a army chaplain he is not his interactions with the Japanese are inherently going to be affected by that. You know what I mean? Like he's as a character, right? Like I mean, it, it and 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 I I don't know much about it, but I can only imagine that. Like considering what I've seen, what we've seen of American culture, I guarantee you that this happened in in post war Japan, um, where army chaplains felt the need to go out and proselytize while they were here. I'm right. sure. I mean, I don't know he's- anything about it, but I'm sure it happened. He's being presented as a Catholic Catholic missionary, uh, while simultaneously being a uh, American Army chaplain, and that's that's. I hope that's inaccurate. It wouldn't surprise me if it's not, but also it seems like it could be, like like it's an amalgamation of two different aspects of. Catholic work that probably didn't cross as often as as this would suggest right. they did, but uh, 
but maybe they did and maybe i'm wrong um well i mean it's it's certainly within yeah. the realm of possibility I mean, I think but. I think we would have to what we would have to do it. The the view we would have to take on it is probably that, regardless of whether or not it happened very much or not, between the, you know, if this is a part of the original source material, we're at least forced to believe that the person who wrote it believed that this was a thing, right? Which means he had a perception of the way yeah. that the occupying forces occupied, whether or not he's right or wrong. Right, he believed this to be probably believed this to be accurate, and and yeah, and, the, and that that says something interesting about the role of Christianity in the in the in the war and then the occupation of Japan. Right, and something we talked uh, touched on last week the uh, the role of Christianity in the West as an arm of imperialism, right. Uh, and as as this normalization of morality, right. that when when these uh, when these American GIs and and the American government is trying to occupy Japan, they're going to try to force Absolutely. them to be morally in line with America, which is going to involve teaching them. Right, and and actually, about Japan managed to uh, ma- Japan managed to dodge that bullet pretty hard by yeah. adopting the mora- um, some of the morality, and then kind of saying, "Go fuck yourself" to the religion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, We're which done. is uh, which is actually a surprising accomplishment. <laughs> I, if I'm going to be totally honest, because yeah, a lot of places just never. When it comes to imperialistic Christianity, a lot of places just did not get away with that, but Japan right. managed to sort of pull it off. Um, keep in mind what we're talking about here as an extension of what we've talked about last week, there is a reason why Japan isolated itself from uh, the West. And a lot of it has to do with that very concept. Oh yeah. During, during, you know, the Edo era, there's a reason why Christianity was banned and the, and, and foreign missionaries were, were to be kept out. It was not because they didn't want, they did not, it's not because they didn't want the technology and it was everything to do with the fact that they, they saw what happened in China and Korea and the fact is, the price you pay for taking guns and other technology from Christian minister uh, missionaries is a very heavy was a very heavy burden. You you right. and because pre the that isolation, I mean, Japanese warlords converted to Christianity to be able to get access to that technology, and some of them became very fervent Christians in in, in their own right, and some of them were quite famous. Uh, but the reality is, is that. That that decision came from the reality of seeing that they're not going to stop at just make trying to make us Christian, right? That's not where this will end. And and I think that there's there's a certain amount of reflection of that that thought even in this film that sort of as a Japanese overarching philosophy for dealing with Christianity is a still that's kind of still present in this in these kind of stories as well, right? Right. Um, also, it's interesting, perhaps, that uh, the priest is seen as the one, the one oppressive force that can sort of be overcome. Uh, right. Uh, she she manages to seduce him, and then he commits suicide. Uh, well, implied to have committed suicide. Somehow, he ends up dead in the water. Yeah, uh, we don't know, but we're we we. <laughs> We are supposed to assume. Yes. I am certain of that. 
Right. Because she uh, did not kill him. Right. Um, and that's another instance. Uh, that whole scene of her... Uh, it's weird because it like takes place in a graveyard that looks like looks like well, a horror movie. Well, uh, I mean, the, the set movies, for a second. The, the movie sets are very weird. Okay. Yeah, they're they're very claustrophobic because you well, know, it's also they have very little space to work with in terms of the yeah. Sus- Suzuki is filming on the Nakatsu lot, so right. the large scale town scenes. Uh, are claustrophobic by necessity to block out the rest of the <laughs> the rest of the studio lot. Right, absolutely. Uh, and then the sort of interior and the weirder things like this are, you know, things they built cheaply, right? And then, and and, and probably borrowed from a horror movie, <laughs> or 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 at In least another or, or another war film. I mean, like yeah. 1964 Japan was not. Was not not making a lot of war films, okay. Yeah. So like, um, I mean, I mean, it looks like a bombed out church, which is fine. Right. It's a little bit anachronistic because they're in fucking Tokyo. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's possible. It's it, there's actually a weird element about this film that I found really like kind of hard to deal with. Was he kept talking about going to church? Okay. There's nothing right. wrong with that. And and there's nothing inherently wrong with that concept. And I have no doubt that people came to Japan and proselytized during in the post-war time. I have no doubt that that happened. But the reality is is that they would not be taking them to a bombed-out Japanese church, right? That probably doesn't exist, right? They would most likely because keep in mind that like there was also another ban on Christianity in the wartime. Okay, uh, so I mean. The reality is, is it seems very unlikely that he would be taking that anybody would go there to do any religious activities, and Japanese standards for church, other than in Nagasaki, is pretty much just looks like a house. Like, so it almost strikes me that they got a hold of a set piece from another film, right? That somehow had a church in it, that maybe isn't even set in Japan, because it's real weird. <laughs> I don't know, man. Um, I do like how that 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 scene plays out on a weird, like, uh, very pagan metaphysical level, where she she tears off the crucifix before he goes. Like she's eliminated <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, the yeah. it's the, real, uh, it's the talismanic wild. power of the crucifix. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, and then he kind of maybe gives in, but we get the discretion shot before that happens. And then, and then the next time we see him, he's dead. Uh, so. Yeah. Well, that, it, that's all. Very, yeah. It, that whole thing is pretty fascinating actually, because like that would, that would Suzuki also seems to not be able to help himself in terms of putting in like. Japanese symbolism, right? And 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 Japanese sort of in this situation, kind of Japanese conceptualizations of the way religions and things like that function. And I think that's probably very purposeful to portray like Catholicism in a light that is functionally similar to the way Japanese traditional religions function, where it's like, oh, I have removed your source of power, 
Right. I now have control over you. Is a very, very Shinto kind of like old school Japanese religion kind of idea rather than a. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's not in line perfectly with any sort of traditional Japanese religion in that way. It just, it feels much more in line with the way that somebody. It's almost like he's purposely choosing to tell this story from a very Japanese perspective, like almost hyper so in that way. Like he but, probably knows better is what I'm saying. But, but there also is maybe kind of there is maybe some some sort of uh, other historical precedence for that. Uh, if if there is historical accuracy within uh Scorsese's silence. One thing that comes up is that the uh the Christian population there, including the foreign missionaries coming in, uh when they were being forced to apothesize to to denounce Christianity, mm-hmm. uh it was ceremonial. Uh, they weren't. Absolutely. They didn't just announce it. They, they were stepped to, onto. Yes, absolutely. That is that is that is icon. accurate to the way that um, that was actually the test. The the only yeah. extant tests were checking to see if the the Japanese law during the Edo era specifically required all people to be Buddhist. Right. Um, and the way to test for that was one of the ways to test for that. They had to be registered at a Buddhist temple. Every every person that was essentially where. Buddhism as a state religion kind of crossed into social control in the in the form of actually like being a registrar of all people. Right. Uh, they could compile a list from all the Buddhist temples, but also the way they proved that people were Buddhist was partially by having them trod on a Bible or some other effigy of of Christianity. Right. It didn't actually have to be a Bible because uh, there weren't that many Bibles floating around. Usually, it was a picture of a cross or or a crucifix or something like that. Yeah, um, whatever they had. Available because again, there was not a lot of Christian symbology, uh, you know, symbolic yeah. items just floating around. Um, but the uh, the idea that that was something that would be very wrong to do. Um, well, but it, and, and but keep in mind, not just for a, for not, a ja- yeah, right. The Japanese the Japanese converts are viewing that as that symbology as, as right. There is a reason why inherent. that there is a reason why that right. caught people. <laughs> okay, because. Um, the reality, I mean, they learned to to not people. I mean, there were still Christians in Japan during that time period for a yeah. reason. Because yeah. Yeah. while that hurt some people enough that they revealed themselves, the reality is you you have a choice to make. Yeah. Like I could be a living Christian or a dead one, essentially. Yeah, and um, within si- silence is about making that choice. But right. but within silence, also the the priests themselves uh, have trouble for that. And I don't think it's just presented as. Uh, them knowing that if they are seen to to step on these icons, uh, it will hurt the faith of those around them. Well, I, I mean, I've priests, never seen the movie, but like, I the, mean, are the priests all? They're not missionaries. They should be the Japanese people, right? The 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 priest within silence is specifically about Portuguese missionaries, right? So it's, it's a different, it's also a different era. I mean, that's yeah, a pretty yeah, different it's, era, it's actually. a little bit before what you're talking about historically. Um, so, uh, so the priests, the Catholic priests within this, who are who are Portuguese, 
Uh, also, it's seen as apothization. Uh, you know, they're leaving the faith when they do this as well. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, a lot of Catholic commentary around silence when it came out. Um, I know a lot of Protestants who really love silence and think that it it deals very well with issues of faith and and maintaining maintaining faith uh, under horrible oppression. But a lot of the Catholics I know and follow whose voices I follow uh, hated silence because it it point it paints a priest who does that who gives in who steps on the icon as still the hero of the movie. Whereas whereas the true hero of the movie, as far as they're concerned, is Adam Driver's priest character, who is martyred. Right. right. Well, and that, I mean, it goes it to, down to perspective, right? And it, like, yeah. the, the thing about it is that, like, it's important to understand a couple things about, like, I mean, gonna, we're going to get real but deep in a Seijun Suzuki movie about Japanese <laughs> conceptualizations of religion. But the yeah. ceremony, like, you remember how last week we were talking about the sort of, like, edifice of religion being the religion in terms of Christianity. Right. That that's right. a that's a development in Christianity. Whereas in Japanese that is the thing. Right. The 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 the, the things you do are the religion. They are right. the same thing. They they have no separation. There's no extant separation. Like you can't like Shintoism is which is the is the is the native religion of Japan, which has been blended with Buddhism over many centuries um it it is based it is it is a very 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 old religion okay it is it is an animistic religion it is ancient okay it is one of the oldest extant religions on earth period um and one of the few functional animistic relations or religions left because many of them were wiped out because of colonization right. um and part of that is is that there's no separation there the things you do for the religion are the entirety of the religion. There are no right. there are no written tomes of religion. There are no religious texts. There are things that have become pseudo religious texts because somebody decided to write down a bunch of shit that was already <laughs> happening, and everybody was like, "Oh, well, that was a good idea." Um, but in reality, so for a Japanese person, even a, a Japanese convert to Christianity, it's it's hard. I don't know. I would have to go talk, interview a lot of people to find out. I can imagine that those performance rituals have a lot more weight in in a Japanese viewpoint than in a uh, Western viewpoint of like what is what is religion, right? Well, yeah. Well, what I what I bring this all up to say is I feel you know from you and I we both have a, an American Protestant background, right? Right. And I think I think we. We don't put a lot of stock in that symbiology. Uh, even still being a practicing Christian, I don't put a lot of stock in that symbiology. I don't. <laughs> Me any, being not, I definitely don't put any. Yeah, certainly any don't. It, but. Right. Uh, but I think the reason I bring up silence is that there is at least a, a time where more ornate or formal versions of Christianity uh, do still consider there to be spiritual power within those symbols. Right. And, I, and there's um, nothing wrong with that. But. And, but and I'm not sure that uh, our Catholic priest at this time wouldn't necessarily like. Maybe he also believes that the crucifix is protecting him. But, but uh, I mean, like, I don't. I maybe, but like, right. To my mind, even if he believes in the power of that symbol, 
he, like, the Japanese viewpoint of this posits that by taking away that symbol, you have literally, like, torn away his protection. He he can no right. longer resist her feminine wiles. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's a, that is a hyper-Japanese perspective on that. And and even, a, I think even a Catholic priest, while he might permit himself to do that act because of that as a sort of weird subconscious justification he does right. not he, there's no way he honestly believes that she now has you know full control over him as a human being or something like that you know what i mean there's a reason why he kills himself is what i'm saying right because that, that there's he feels guilt about that whereas if he believed he were possessed by her you know beyond his control he would probably not feel that way necessarily so i don't know right I mean, he he obviously. I I think that that is more for the Japanese audience than it is anything else. Yes, yeah. right. I think he is. He is also presented as someone who is legitimately compassionate about absolutely. the situation here. Absolutely. Um, whereas the other Americans, you know, he's introduced with uh, pulling up as a bunch of American soldiers are running off from raping a woman, and the American MPs say, "Well, not our problem." Uh, right. Which is which is a which is a. Which is a very, very super Japanese uh, perspective on that military uh, sort of what's it with uh, occupation. Uh, that 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 this this is an ongoing problem in Japanese society and history, right? And so I think Suzuki has all probably has very strong opinions about that, right? Right, and and deservedly so because. Even to this day, some of that bullshit is real bad. So. Right. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no, you're right in him being like the literally, essentially the only person with compassion in the entire film. Yeah. But he also himself asks, uh, functions as a symbolic uh, being an American uh, and being associated with the army. Uh uh, Maya's overcoming of him is it's itself a, a symbolic overcoming of the oppression of right of the rest. I mean, ultimately, it doesn't work out for her, right? But uh, well, I mean, that's that's the point of this movie is that it's a very sad movie. So right, and and but ultimately, we don't know what happens to Maya. We just don't right. Like we know what happens to us, you know. We, you know, uh, Joe's character, I fucking forget who his name is actually as a character. Shintaro Ibuki is what they yeah. keep referring to him as. Yeah. So he, I mean, we know what happens to him, but we don't really know what happens to anybody else, really. Right. Because well, cause we're not that far away from, in the context of the film, we're not that far away from, Suzuki knows, because he's making the film in 1964, he's not that far, we're not that far away from things actually stabilizing. You know what I mean? So we don't know what happens to – and I think that's part of what Suzuki's kind of having fun with, right, is that the dead people are literally the only people we don't know what hap- – that we know what happens to them. <laughs> yeah. Because Japan goes through a lot of changes very quickly between 1947 and 1964. Like severe, intense changes. And actually Suzuki telegraphs it like hard because I don't remember who says it. But um, I think it's I think it is Ibuki. It is Joe's character. 
says, like, the only way we're going to get through this is to just tear it all fucking down and start again. And right. that is essentially what – that is essentially Suzuki telegraphing what he has seen in the decade, almost decade, well, between the making of this story and the making of this film. Yeah, and that's literally happening during the making of this film. Absolutely, Kone, absolutely. Konichiwa is shooting his uh, uh, his uh, <laughs> Olympics documentary the same year. And yep. that's the opening sequence of the Olympics documentary is tearing down those old uh, burned out buildings. And, you know, there's a reason there's a reason Suzuki, despite being in the aftermath of a war torn country, if he was shooting in Europe, he could have still found bombed out buildings to film in instead of doing on a right. set. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, whereas Japan. Well, it, that, they don't it have also, time for there's, that a, there's also <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that. But like, right. I mean, part of it is a sort of perspective, right? Like, the the perspective he presents there is literally the Japanese perspective on the end of the war, which is we don't have time to sit around and lick our wounds. Let's get to work. And we do see other Japanese filmmakers deal with that in a different way, which is some Japanese filmmakers do, like Ozu, I believe, does deal with the idea that, like, that activity, while good for the Japanese economy had a lot of negative effects on the people who actually fought in the war because the the general attitude was, we ain't got time for this shit. Let's all get back to work. And so a lot of people just never dealt with the the trauma that they went through, right? Like, I mean, there's a certain amount of, of well, we're all into this together because we literally all went through the same trauma kind right. of I, of concept as well because, you know, literally, like, as as the losing side... Unlike what you deal with with like um, the movie we watched a while back, the uh, the American one about PTSD, where there's a lot of people coming home, this is home. Literally, everybody is living in the land of trauma. Yeah, where we're all, and and you know we I think it's uh, is it Maya who says it? Who says it that like we've all got trauma straight up? We just all do. So it doesn't do us any good to sit around gabbing about it. Um. Well, you know, I actually, it wasn't Maya. Who said it? I can't remember which character said it, but um, one of them comes onto the boat while they're chit-chatting about, like, the bullshit, like, the terrible lives they've had. And it's like, look, I mean, and that's kind of the attitude that everybody seems to, in Japan, seems to have operated with. But a lot of people, that meant a lot of people didn't really deal with their trauma at all. Um, And so, it, you know, it's just, there's a lot of interesting things here because, like, Suzuki's getting a chance to talk about that that decade in the context of using a film made pre those changes because his audience also knows what happens like also knows right. how things have unfolded for the last decade yeah and and they get to view it with those eyes right they get to say like oh well like you know we did have to tear it all down and it's it's a both you know literal and you know and uh for you know uh but Ideologically, ideologically yeah. as well. Japan is moving from what was very much an authoritarian, militaristic Absolutely, yeah. regime to something different. And you do need to tear that all down. Well, right. And and they and in reality, they didn't. I mean, and the reality right. is, is they, they didn't. It, it, they're not talking. It's, it's really fascinating. This whole thing is really fascinating because... Uh, they're not really talking about some aspects of Japanese culture being torn down. They can't. They didn't want to tear it all down, right? They wanted to tear down the sort of the 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 
what is it called? And I forget the term, the something industrial complex. Yeah, military industrial complex, right? And get rid of that and some of that stuff. But like they didn't want to get rid of like Japanese traditions or anything like that. There was not very much desire for that. And uh we and he's not talking about that either, right? So like and some of the like it's interesting in this film because he's talking about there everybody's walking around talking about democracy and they and the a lot of them say it with this weird sort of like spit in their mouth, right? Keep in mind Japan was only a military dictatorship for a pretty short period of time. Prior yeah. to that was definitely a democracy. Right. Like definitely a hardcore democracy too. Like for for you know a good 20 30 you know i mean it was it's off and on right it was not a democracy for very long but people got pretty invested in the idea of japanese democracy and there's a reason why japanese people take democracy pretty seriously now the voting right. rate is much higher here uh and it's not because of the americans let's be clear here you know right. what I mean? Like it was not the Americans didn't just magically wave a, a democracy wand over Japan <laughs> and then have everybody like it fit with the aesthetic of Japanese society quite well with the, the sort of ideation of Japanese society quite well. And so they, they that's an, a weird part about it. I think he's using democracy as a sort of euphemism for uh, imposed rule. Yeah. Like the Americans are air quotes bringing democracy. And and Suzuki knows that they don't get democracy until they get the Americans actually out of town. Right. They don't really have democracy because the Americans just have final say on every fucking thing they do. Right. And Suzuki knows this, whereas the 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 book doesn't. Right. I mean, the book does know that that they're really not getting a democracy. They're talking about a lot of democracy talk, but they're not actually in a democracy right now. Right. Uh, whereas Suzuki knows that he is in one, and that. Once they got the Americans to leave and and all those treaties were signed, they actually have a democracy, right? And so he gets to talk about that from almost in a retrospectively, retrospective way. That being said, even Suzuki probably knows that he's not at that time, even in his time, in a real hard core democracy because there's a lot of active juking by American government to make sure that, like – Certain types of people stay in power so that uh, the Soviets don't win and shit like that, too, going on at the same time. We do that a lot. Yeah, there was a—I mean, Japan was not as bad as other places. I mean, Korea had it real bad. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, in terms of like, oh, we'll just keep this military dictator in power so that uh, we can beat the Soviets because they want to install military dictators. Oh, wait, wait, what? <laughs> Yeah, but he's our guy, Pat. Yeah, he's our military dictator. Japan didn't have it that bad. But, I mean, I, whether or not Suzuki is doing almost a meta commentary about the fact that we're not even... Well, it's 1964 and we're still not really in a, air quotes, democracy. Um, hard to know. Well, Japan also didn't have a geographically contingent uh, communist base that we could easily separate the country into two forms. Right, right. Well, I mean, in Japan... <laughs> Which I seems mean, to be our MO in Southeast Asia. Right, so. right. There was, a go- there was a serious goal by the American government, though, to ensure that Japan could operate as a bulwark against communism. That being said, socialist right. parties and, and communist parties were allowed to be formed. Right. And as, were, uh, as were very hard right parties. Absolutely. As we, as we talked yeah. about with... Uh, uh, that film a couple weeks ago. We're going to get to talk about that next week, Adam. Real yeah. hard. And it is yeah. not going to be pleasant. 
I'm sure it Let me be. tell you. Not looking forward to that. Yeah. Uh, so we talked a little bit uh, cinematically about this film already with the with the sort of like superimposition shots and yeah, which I actually like a lot. I think those are really which cool. I really loved. I also love the cal- color palette of this film. It's uh, good. Um, there I like what he does was with, the, with the, the female actresses when they're talking about Ibuki. I like that a lot. I think it's mm-hmm. really silly and fun for some reason where they all go into this fantasy state and their dresses match their background. And then that's right. their dream state when they talk about him. It, it's yeah. all very fascinating. And then the sort of mundane bullshit that they pick about him because that's the society they're in right now because like everything's horrible. And so I, they just pick these kind of really sad little things about him that they like. And so you know, it's just that whole, yeah. it's a very stylistically, well, that- it's so Suzuki it hurts. Basically. That color, that color stylism also, you know, the the girls are color coded, yep. uh, and and the red is aggressive, and the yellow is more docile, and uh, the purple is more regal, and then the one who doesn't wear her color coded dress is the one who fails at their self imposed rule about mm-hmm. uh, sex only for money uh, first, um, and has more of a traditional geisha thing about her. And yeah, she's very, wearing a kimono, like, and 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 yeah. she has a very traditional, idealized version of what she wants in the world. She wants to be married, yeah. and she right. doesn't. She does not want to be there. She does not want to be doing what she is doing. Absolutely. Um. Yeah. So. <laughs> Love very. But that's a, that's all kind of neat, right? Because uh, I Suzuki, I mean, he lays into pretty hard that like these are the main characters of this film, like right. Joe's in there, and Joe plays an important part to the functioning of the story and is the thing that they're all focused on. But, like, you could replace him with essentially almost anybody, and it would still function. It's, it, it's, it's fascinating that way. He's, he's, the, he's, the, he's the lead character in a film that's not really about his character. So... It's really very much about them, right? And their interactions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, thematically and, and, and visually, this all works really well together. Yeah. Um, no, I like, I like a lot about this movie. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, especially considering how many pink films come out of Nikatsu moving forward. Yeah. Uh, None of these actresses are Nikatsu contracted actresses. None of the actresses who worked for Nikatsu wanted to do this film uh, because of the nudity. Yeah. Um, so these are all outside actresses. That That's a, that, yeah. And well, and, that, and a lot of that will change going forward in their history of that right. organization. But as of right at, at this point, I think I have to go and look, but I think it, we're still kind of on the cusp of that. We haven't quite crossed over into them just essentially just being a pink film producer exclusively. Right. Um, we, we, in previous episodes, we've talked about exactly when that happened because we were dealing with a different uh, director who I believe who was right on that cusp as well and ended up making exclusively those kind of films later on. Right. Uh, So what do you think? What's the over-under on uh, 
story of a prostitute being a oh, essentially God. a pink film. <laughs> I I well, I mean, I actually very much find it hard to believe that 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 the Criterion Collection would choose a an an explicitly pink film of Suzuki to I put don't... into the correct into the collection. Yeah. Um, that seems unlikely. Uh, yeah. And I, I think it's probably more they're going for a theme because that was also written by the same guy and deals right. directly with, like, the war. Um, right. And, and so it's one of the ones that we've – like, it's Suzuki dealing more directly with the war rather than indirectly like he does in most of his other films. Because, like, you know, quite a, quite a few of his other films, like, Guy ha- is somebody who came back from the war. Like, that's a thing. But uh, these are more – probably a little bit more direct. I am I am most concerned with – Dealing with, I, I I found a Japan Times article that I'm reading, and I'm trying to work my way through that because it seems pretty right wing. So I'm trying to, yeah, read it, but with a real, real, keep my feet on the ground kind of viewpoint. Um, so, but I but I do want to see what it has to say because it does have some interesting notes about like the process that story of a prostitute went through to come into existence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to read that before next week. Uh. But no, I'm I'm real nervous because again, like history has spoken, and and the reality of the matter is is that the the very idea, uh, yeah, I mean, like even the synopsis, disappointed by the marriage of her lover to a woman he does not love, prostitute Harumi drifts from the city to a remote Japanese outpost outpost in Manchuria to work in a comfort house or brothel during the Sino Japanese War. My problem with that is is that like there is almost borderline no evidence of any Japanese women working in that role. Yeah. Which is gonna be a thing we're gonna have to talk about next week. <laughs> I look forward to that conversation, I really do. because uh, I think it's going to be very interesting. It's gonna Always be painful is what it's gonna be. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um <laughs> So this week we've been talking about Gate of Flesh, Cezanne Suzuki's 1964 uh, post-war period piece about a group of prostitutes uh, in Tokyo. Um, very interesting movie with a lot of very fascinating things to say. I'm always, always delighted by Suzuki. Next week, I'm afraid, maybe we won't be. As well, we talk I, about, I, I, I'm, I've got hope. I've got hope. Yeah, I'm really it being a Suzuki that, film gives me hope. Yeah, uh, we just don't know anything like about how he's going to handle this shit. Right, right. Um, so, 1965 story of a prostitute next week, which is as of this recording our final Suzuki film in the entire collection at spine number 299. So. Uh, Hopefully it goes out on a high note, because <laughs> we really do love him. And we'll see you next time. Uh, thank you once again for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, Lee Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan. Bye. Bye.
You've been listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.Bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and support us on Patreon. That's Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. We'd appreciate it.